For a large man, he walks lightly, smiling quietly, seeming to hurry so that the next day will come even sooner. He waits at the bus stop, but continues to move around, buoyed by his feelings and dreams. In a moment of pure joy, he punches the bus stop sign, smiling broadly and running to hail a cab, too excited and exuberant to wait for the bus. To me, it's the pinnacle of the movie, the pure joy of finding someone who understands you. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen. Episode 5, Marty. I've really been looking forward to this episode, as this is one of my top films ever, and the emotions it stirs are one of the reasons I started this podcast. It's Marty, released in 1955 by United Artists through their distribution deal with Heck Lancaster Productions. This is the little movie that could from the 50s, with an unlikely group of professionals banding together for what was, for many of them, the highlight of their careers. I won't say it's a feel-good movie because my tongue would break off with that phrase, but it was the first film to succeed brilliantly in what is nearly a genre now, the good-hearted guy who ultimately finds love, though he's not a ladies' man. Marty was also unusual in that it portrayed nearly the same vibe from the side of the lead actress. It's a perfect blend of how two very lonely people may find love in a sometimes cold world. You have to start the story with the genius who wrote it, Patty Chayefsky, who wrote equally well for television, film, and in novels. He was a leading light and remarkably prolific during the first golden age of television and produced the original scripting for Marty for the Philco Television Playhouse. That was a much shorter and concise story than the movie to fit the time constraints of TV, primarily concentrating on Marty and his eventual date, Clara. The TV version played to much acclaim and producer Harold Heck felt that the drama would make a great film for his production company, partnered by Burt Lancaster. Chayefsky felt he had been badly treated during two stops in Hollywood in the 40s, so he was reluctant to sell the property. He eventually signed for a deal in which he produced a fuller script and had creative control, including casting decisions, choice of the same director as the TV broadcast, Delbert Mann, and associate producer credit. My crack about this film being a career pinnacle for many of those involved doesn't include Chayefsky, as he would win the Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay for The Hospital and Network, as well as the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for Marty. The Hospital is wonderful black comedy, and Network is a frighteningly prescient look at the effect of television on the public and the ends to which television goes to keep the public in its grip. And when I say frightening... I mean it's almost dead on for the 2000s, though written in 1976. Chayefsky died too soon of cancer at age 58. Harold Heck was the producer of the film through his production company with Burt Lancaster, Heck Lancaster Productions, later be joined by writer James Hill to form Heck Hill Lancaster. During his career, 
Heck was a producer, a choreographer, sometimes actor and talent agent, the latter notably for Lancaster. He had a huge string of hits, including Veracruz, Sweet Smell of Success, a terrific film, Separate Tables, Birdman of Alcatraz, and Cat Ballou. Heck brought Marty in for a pittance, even for the 50s, $350,000. Lancaster was not confident about the project, but as we will see, things turned out. Case study of someone who hit a career high note with Marty was the director, Delbert Mann. Chayefsky demanded that Mann direct the film, as he had the television version. Mann had come up through the ranks in television and become successful, but Marty was his first feature film. He went on to helm others, such as Desire Under the Elms, Separate Tables for Hecht once again, A Gathering of Eagles, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and even Fitz Willie. But nothing to compare to the high and transcendence of his very first feature film. Other than an outstanding writer and a well-received television version, nothing about Marty had yet cried out that it would become a classic. I think in addition to Chayefsky's tremendous script, the luck of the draw was in the casting. Rod Steiger played Marty in the television broadcast, and Hecht Lancaster wanted him for the film, but only if he would sign a multi-picture contract with them. He refused. Good. Rod Steiger was a solid actor. He was great in The Harder They Fall. He won a well-deserved Oscar for In the Heat of the Night. But man, he chewed the scenery. He always seemed to desire all eyes on himself, which you see in Dr. Shivago, Duck You Sucker, just terrible there, and even in On the Waterfront. So thank God, Heck turned to a very unlikely candidate for the key role of Marty Poletti, Butcher. When Ernst Borgnine mustered out of the Navy after World War II, his mother rapidly pitched that he needed to get a job, but with the unusual suggestion that he take up acting because you like getting in front of people and making a fool of yourself. He worked and studied in community theater and received a huge break in a breakout performance playing Sergeant Fatso Judson in From Here to Eternity in 1953. Some break. His big role results on him killing Sinatra, the chairman of the board, and head of the Rat Pack. Some start. He was then well on his way to typecasting as a heavy in Johnny Guitar, Vera Cruz for Hecht, and Bad Day at Blackrock. Luckily, Hecht remembered him and called him back to play Marty. Borgnine was an actor who really looked like he might be a butcher, but he carries the role and the picture to places Steiger never would have. He played other well-received film roles in Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, especially in The Wild Bunch, and was in two very long-running and so-so TV series, McHale's Navy, ugh, and Airwolf, double ugh. The role of Marty was the apex for Borgnine, and he was perfect for the part, a wonderful meeting of the right actor and role seemingly made for him. The part of his counterpoint, Clara, was supposed to go to the actress who played it on TV, Nancy Marchand, who would later become well-known on the television series Lou Grant. The actress who had her eye on the role was Betsy Blair, a dancer, stage, and film actress with credits in A Double Life, Another Part of the Forest, and The Snake Pit. She was also Gene Kelly's wife after having met him while dancing in a show he was choreographing. She was also under investigation as a leftist by the House Committee on Un-American Activities during the early 50s and was subsequently blacklisted. Blair knew the role was the chance of a lifetime, and Kelly put pressure on United through his MGM contacts to cast Blair, 
threatening to not take part in It's Always Fair Weather, which would have been no loss. It's not very good. The pressure carried the day, and Blair was cast. Betsy Blair was a fine-looking woman, but not glamorous. And in Marty, she was made up plainly, dressed with unflattering, simple clothes as befit a teacher of the time, as well as flatly lit. The end result was that she bore no resemblance to a Hollywood actress in the film, which was perfect. She plays Clara with a quiet desperation and settled resignation. After Marty, Blair was divorced from Kelly and unable to find work in the U.S. due to blacklisting. She moved to Europe and worked in theater, television, and film, married Czech director Carol Reitz, and passed away while living in London. The rest of the picture is packed with actors who would go on to other visible but lesser roles. Joe Mantell plays Angie, Marty's best friend from the neighborhood. Mantell had played the same role on the television version of Marty and was a TV veteran by the middle 50s. He's the counter to Marty's good-hearted but seemingly placid character, always on the make, but just as frustrated as Marty at how his life has turned out, an endless week of work and weekends vainly trying to interest women. Mantell has the distinction of two great lines in film history. The first, the, what do you feel like doing tonight? That sets off his and Borgnine's apathetic conversation on how they will fail at love this weekend, as every weekend. The second was during his role as Lawrence Walsh, one of Jake Giddis's associates in the movie Chinatown, in which he gives Jack Nicholson as Giddies the last line in the film. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Two great lines, both filled with a deep faithfulness. A whole set of actors for whom this would be the top of their careers filled out the cast. Jerry Paris, famous as the neighbor Jerry Helper on The Dick Van Dyke Show and later a successful TV director, plays Marty's cousin, Tommy. Frank Sutton, yeah, Sergeant Carter of Gomer Pyle USMC, plays an uncredited friend of Marty's, Ralph. Esther Minciotti and Augusta Cioli reprise their roles from the television production as Marty's mother, Teresa, and Aunt Catherine, respectively. Man even snuck Chayefsky into the backseat of a car as a dark figure who converses with Marty on his date with Clara. It's a good-hearted, hard-working crew that is propelled by Chayefsky's wonderful script and man's capture of lower-middle-class life in the 50s, particularly for blue-collar men. Spoilers coming. Fast forward if you haven't seen Marty yet and want to preserve the fun and emotion of spending a Saturday and Sunday with him for a separate viewing. The film is remarkably compact, barely running 90 minutes, and takes place Saturday afternoon and Sunday in a working-class part of New York City. Marty Poletti, played by Borgnine, is a 34-year-old butcher working in his boss's Italian specialty meat shop on a very busy Saturday afternoon. As he fills the order of the women of the neighborhood, he tells them enthusiastically how his brother was married the previous weekend and what a fine affair it was, with the women repeatedly asking him how he can bring shame on his family by remaining unmarried so late in life, with all his sisters and brothers now gone from the home, leaving only Marty and his mother. He was obviously heard this many times before. He grimacingly puts up with the harping and goes over to his local at the close of business. He runs into most of his friends and acquaintances there, including his best friend, Angie, played by Mantell. Over beers, Angie repeatedly asks Marty what they're doing that night, to which Marty throws the question back at Angie, asking what he'd like to do, the two resembling an old, settled, married couple. They are settled 
into ongoing Saturday nights of disappointment in pursuing women. Angie notes his mother asks him all the time, when he's going to get married, when he's going to get married. He suggests they call up some women they met at the movies a few weeks before, but Marty refuses and asks Angie to stop by his house that night to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, Marty's cousin Tommy, played by Paris, and his wife Virginia, played by Karen Steele, plead with Marty's mother Teresa to take her sister and Tommy's mother, Catherine, into her large, almost empty house. Catherine interferes with Virginia's running of their small apartment and the raising of their baby. The young couple is at wit's end and hope this will take the strain off their marriage. Teresa agrees to speak with Catherine that night to persuade her to move and asks Marty if it would be all right, to which he agrees. Marty wants to talk to Tommy, an accountant, about an idea he has to buy the butcher shop from his boss, who's retiring. Tommy promises to talk to Marty about it after Mass on Sunday. Marty decides to call the woman he met weeks before with Angie and try to set a double date. At first, she can't even remember who he is and says she's busy for that night, the next night, and next week, in effect giving him the brush, as he puts it later. His mother serves Marty dinner and asks him what he's going to do that night, to which he says he'll probably just stay in. She cajoles him and suggests he go to the Stardust Ballroom, which was recommended by Tommy. It's loaded with tomatoes. Marty is cynical about this, as he's been there before. His mother keeps pestering him to put on the blue suit and go. Marty finally explodes and says it doesn't matter whether it's the gray suit or the blue suit. He's just a fat, ugly man that women don't care for. Ultimately, he tells his mother he'll go, but he'll only get heartaches for his efforts. Angie and Marty are perusing the crowd at the Stardust Ballroom, asking women to dance. Angie has some luck, but women keep offering Marty excuses. Clara, played by Blair, arrives with her friends, Millie and Andy, who have set her up on a blind date with Herb. Andy explains to Herb that Clara has a good deal of charm, but Herb repeatedly complains to Andy that he gets one Saturday off every three weeks and would like to end up with a more beautiful woman. In fact, he sees someone he knows at the ballroom and begins asking men if they'll pretend to be an old army buddy and take Clara home in exchange for a five spot. He approaches Marty, who is outraged, and tells him he can't treat a woman that way. Marty follows Herb as he approaches another man, who goes with Herb over to Clara, and the three talk, though we can't hear what they say. But it's obvious that Clara's crestfallen, and the two men stalk away. Clara goes out to the roof and begins to cry, followed by Marty, who asks her to dance. She turns and falls into his arms, crying, and he awkwardly tries to comfort her. Marty and Clara dance, and he tells her that he's enjoying himself with her. He disarmingly tells her, We aren't such dogs as we think we are, since they are enjoying being together. They begin to learn about each other and talk more deeply. Meanwhile, Marty's mother has talked her sister Catherine into moving in with Marty and her, though Catherine poisons the conversation with her thoughts about how it's a curse to be old, that there's nothing for her to do with all her children grown, and that soon it will happen to Teresa as well. Marty has persuaded Clara to go for some coffee with him, and he talks a mile a minute while she listens and smiles. He tells her about his background, his father's passing, his time in the army, how he was emotionally lost after the surface and fell into being a butcher, which he thinks is a trade which is looked down upon. He confines in her about his dream of buying his boss's shop, and she encourages him, 
as she feels his enthusiasm and potential. Marty suggests they go to his house to get some cash and go out to a few other places. While they're out, Angie looks futilely for Marty and ends up back at their local. Clara talks about becoming a department head at a high school farther away, but says she's worried that she'll be lonely. Marty thinks she'll make friends rapidly, that she's very likable, and he would visit her. Ralph sees Marty and calls him over to his car, which is full of three nurses, suggesting Marty ditch Clara and get in with them to go to a party. Marty refuses and walks back to Clara. He brings her to his house, and they have some small talk, and then Marty attempts to kiss her, but she resists. He talks about how this is how it is with him and women, that he can never get a date for even New Year's Eve. Clara later explains that she didn't know how to handle the situation. She emphasizes repeatedly that she likes him very much and would like to see him again, that she'll be thinking about him after he takes her home. He asks her out for the next night to a movie and asks what she's doing New Year's Eve, and they kiss briefly. Teresa comes into the house and meets and talks with Clara, asking her opinion on the situation with Catherine, but disagreeing with Clara's ideas. Marty and Clara head to the bus to take her home and run into Angie, who asks Marty what he wants to do. Marty says he's taking Clara home, and Angie stalks away. Marty and Clara catch the bus, and he walks her to her apartment house, promising to call her after Mass for a date for the movies. Clara goes into the apartment with a light step, while Marty makes his way back to the bus stop, then excitedly tries to hail a taxi. Marty speaks with his mother the next morning, and, bolstered by Clara's confidence, says he's going to buy the butcher shop, but his mother is very curt. Tommy and Virginia fight over his mother leaving their apartment and eventually drive her to Teresa's house. Teresa tells Catherine about Clara, and Catherine predicts Marty will fall for her, marry, and want to move them out of the old house and into an apartment, a prediction Marty partially fulfills a few minutes later. Marty tries to talk to Tommy about the butcher shop, but Tommy tells him he has the world on a string, with no debt and no wife. He begs Marty to make sure his mother is comfortable in his house. Marty and his mother go to Mass, and before they go in, she disparages Clara as old, plain, and not Italian. This dismays Marty deeply. After Mass, Marty goes to the local and hears from Ralph about what he missed Saturday night. Angie comes in and says that Clara was a real nothing. He wants to know what Marty wants to do that night, and Marty says he's going to take Clara to the movies. Some friends of Marty plus Angie come to his house and discuss women and continue to disparage Clara. Marty lets the time tick by when he should be calling Clara. That evening, he stands on the porch with his mother and aunt, then heads to the local. Clara is trying to watch Ed Sullivan with her parents, but barely holding back tears, as it seems she has been let down by a man again. Marty and his friends stand around outside the bar and shoot ideas back and forth on what to do. What would be fun? What's too far away? What everyone feels like doing? Marty finally bursts out that they're all miserable and lonely and stupid. He bursts into the bar and heads to the phone, telling his friends that he had a good time with Clara, and if he has enough good times with her, he'll beg her to marry him, and he doesn't care what they or his family think. And then he'll have a date for New Year's Eve. He dials Clara from the phone booth, but first has a side conversation with Angie about how he should be ashamed of himself for not being married, then says, Hello, Clara?
Oh man, do I love this movie. Its approach is tender and respectful. The people and the lives it dives into, what they feel, good and bad, how they face the challenges in their life, how they seek love and sometimes find it. It's not a Hollywood movie, if I may use that term. It's akin to The Bicycle Thief, an Italian neorealism in its emotion, in that it embraces people who you wouldn't pick out of the crowd and shows how they face their life. It embodies the Spanish adage, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I wish so much that Patty Chayefsky had lived longer to craft more stories that captured the human condition as this movie does. The focus and the pillars of the movie are, of course, Marty and Clara. They're the archetypes for people who strive and strive and are sometimes beaten down by life, but rejoice when they move forward or triumph. The focus is usually on Marty, but Clara is fighting her own hard battle. Though she is successful as a teacher, intelligent, well-spoken, and thoroughly kind, she's repeatedly overlooked. She has a good deal of charm in place of obvious beauty. When Herb attempts to fob her off on a stranger at the Stardust Ballroom, she is, once again, rejected for her surface. Though it's shot from a distance, you can see her face fall and her shoulders slump as she realizes what's happening. Even more heartbreaking is the contrast between her light step and look of joy after Marty has dropped her off at her apartment, then thinking on Sunday afternoon that the man who seemed so promising and kind yesterday has not followed through. Why doesn't he call? Was last night just a cruel joke? While she sits with her parents watching television, you can feel her tears and the drop from the dream of the previous night. It's a gut punch to watch her face and body language throughout these parts of the film, and you can easily put yourself in her place as she suffers. When I watch, I always try to imagine how she feels when Marty calls her later from the bar and what that meant for their life together. Marty has many of the same emotions as Clara, but they're more clearly evidenced in the film. He's unfailingly upbeat when speaking with his customers and friends, generous in repeatedly talking about his brother's wedding and how grand it was. But he takes a variety of blows that are singular to the 50s, but still resonant today. His family puts tremendous pressure on him. Find a job, any job. Support your family as your sisters are unmarried. It shames your house if they're single. Get married yourself as you bring shame on your family by remaining a bachelor. You're going to die without a son. Support your mother and her sister in their old age. Make sure they're comfortable. On the other hand, the woman you're attracted to is called older, not pretty, and not Italian, therefore not suitable. His friends place easily as much pressure on him. Don't go out with dogs. It ruins your reputation. Stay with us and keep doing what we're doing, whether or not it makes you happy. Like many of us, Marty feels he has come to a point in his life in which he is, if not content, at least willing to go on living a life that is often gray and repetitive. Putting on the gray suit or the blue suit no longer leads him to believe better things are ahead. Though he's upbeat with most people he meets, he finally explodes with frustration about his situation to his mother, calling himself a fat, ugly man. He can no longer see himself as anything else. But I love that Marty has the spark to try one more time, cajoled about it or not. What leads him to Clara on this initially sad evening? His basic decency and humanity. When Herb approaches him to fob off Clara, he responds with outrage at the very idea. 
He follows Clara because he realizes she'll be hurt deeply by the obvious lie. And finding her crying, asks her simply to dance, to show he's interested in her as a human being. It's so affecting for me when she turns to him and starts crying on his shoulder. He puts his sausage-like fingers very tentatively on her shoulders and back, and just as tentatively pats her, trying to comfort her. Marty is obviously uncomfortable and unused to this type of contact, but he does his best. And they dance. The conversation they have as they dance is wonderful, as Marty speaks in terms of both of them being, as he puts it, dogs. But he quickly returns again and again to the fact he's enjoying dancing with Clara and talking with her, and she responds in kind. To Marty, this puts him on the way to friendship, and perhaps happiness. We aren't such dogs as we think we are. When they go out for coffee, Marty opens up in a way we've not seen before. Instead of his usual upbeat surface, he feels a connection with Clara and talks and talks about himself, genuinely, speaking deeply about his history, his fears, his hopes for the future. Clara responds in a way that is touching, comparing him to students she has seen who are bright and have so much potential. She knows Marty will succeed at whatever he tries, including owning the butcher shop. Marty serves the same role for her, supporting her ideas about becoming the head of a department in another school, building up the idea she'll make friends easily, and he'll visit her and call her so she's never lonely. Three vignettes solidify for me the happy accident of this film and the feelings it engenders of humanity, love, and the strength we take from one another. When Claire explains to Marty that she wants to see him again, very much, that she'll go home and think about him and wait for his call the next day, Marty moves away to get a pack of cigarettes in the darkness of his house. But he pauses to wipe away a tear so Clara can't see what it means to him. This is contrasted by Marty's walk to the bus stop after he drops off Clara. For a large man, he walks lightly, smiling quietly, seeming to hurry so that the next day will come even sooner. He waits at the bus stop, but continues to move around, buoyed by his feelings and dreams. In a moment of pure joy, he punches the bus stop sign, smiling broadly and running to hail a cab, too excited and exuberant to wait for the bus. To me, it's the pinnacle of the movie, the pure joy of finding someone who understands you. Finally, Sunday seems pitted against Marty and his happiness. His exuberance from the night before is worn down by his relatives, by the snide remarks of his friends and acquaintances, and ultimately by the lethargy of doing the same old thing with the same group, the inability to break away from the easy inertia of his friends. Once again, Marty explodes, but this time in a positive direction, breaking free of the expectations and desires of his situation, family, and friends, realizing that he has started something with Clara that's beautiful and worth taking a chance on. He ends by making the hopeful call to Clara from the telephone booth of the bar, to start their life together. Marty resonated with audiences and critics because of the realistic view of the growth of two people and the growth of their love. In purely commercial and critical terms, Marty was a huge success for a small, idiosyncratic film. From the tiny $350,000 production cost, it produced over $3 million in U.S. receipts alone. Marty was awarded the Palme d'Or for Best Picture at the 1955 Cannes Film Festival, and went on to upset as the best picture for Hecht at the Academy Awards that year. Mantel and Blair were nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Actress, 
and the film won Best Director for Delbert Mann. While I've already mentioned Chayefsky's win for Best Adapted Screenplay, and the crowning achievement, to me, was Borgnine winning the Best Actor Oscar for the role that fit him like a glove and gave him a chance to shine, not as a heavy, not as a typical leading man, but as a man. The movie is better summed up than by me with Heck's acceptance speech. It's very fortunate to live in a country where any man, no matter how humble his origins, can become a president, and to be part of an industry where any picture, no matter how low its budget, can win an Oscar. All of us who worked on Marty are especially fortunate for this great honor, for to us, from the very beginning, it was a labor of love. There's that word again, love. Marty and the feelings it stirs get into your being. I don't know if it's true to life, but this is underlined for me in a scene from another movie, Quiz Show. John Turturro is fabulous playing Herb Stemple, an unsympathetic plain Joe who has made thousands of dollars on the TV quiz show 21. His appeal dims to audiences, and the producer tells him he will lose on the next show. But he has to lose by answering that the movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1955 was on the waterfront when it was Marty. He replies, oh no, oh no, don't do that to me. Marty? I saw Marty three times. Herb Stemple, plain, unsympathetic guy that he is, felt the resonance of the emotions of Marty and how they related to his life and to all of us. It's one of those movies I watch when I get down. Why? Because we aren't such dogs as we think we are. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram and at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts, and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shellikens, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me... Uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn mm-hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm-hmm. <laughs>